podcast brought to you by Pump Court Chambers, a podcast which every week we will be considering relevant issues concerning family law. I'm your host Tara Lyons and today I'm delighted to be joined by no no one else uh, or no one other than my co-host Mark Ablett to discuss the issue of recovering costs in children proceedings against a legally aided litigant. Mark has a specialist practice in family law which encompasses financial remedies, talata, and private law children. He completed his pupillage in October 2017 and came to us from having a background as a senior paralegal at a leading family law solicitors firm. He's considered a rising star in chambers with encyclopedic knowledge of the case law. Mark, hello. Hi, Tara. Thank you very much for that very kind introduction. You're welcome. Mark, so you've come come on here today to talk about uh, the difficulties in recovering costs against uh, legally aided litigants. Can you just explain to our listeners uh, some of the basic principles of costs orders in children's proceedings? Because it's not every case in which costs come to the fore. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that costs often fall by the wayside in children proceedings, and and perhaps rightly so. Um, so the general rule, well in the family procedure rules, the rule is, is effectively there is no starting point whatsoever. It's what's called the clean sheet approach. It's the same approach that we have in, for example, Family Law Act cases. Uh, but that has been refined by the case law. Um, there yes. is this seminal case of Reed J uh, from 2009 in the Court of Appeal where Lord Justice Wilson gives this judgment and he basically sets out in fairly short order that the general rule for Children Act proceedings is that the court won't make an order for costs. And of course, that, that fits in generally with the um, approach that children cases are supposed to be collaborative and, and not about trying to punish one party or the other. Yes. Um, there are, there, I mean, again, with case law, there are examples where uh, it's possible to get a costs order just because there is a general rule that doesn't mean that one can't depart from it much like in financial remedies um, one of the cases that i certainly often uh, rely on is a case called r and r which was reported in the 1997 family law reports and in summary it basically says that where there is unreasonable litigation conduct there can be an order for costs but it's really important that that unreasonable conduct is litigation conduct. It is not about using a cost order to punish conduct in relation to the children in terms of welfare conduct. Um, and those authorities set out various consider considerations that we should have regard to when making cost orders. And of course, it's a lot more nuanced than say a financial remedy order where you're looking at conduct, you might look at offers to settle, et cetera because children cases are much more emotional and you're you're depending on a co-parenting relationship generally moving forward you know if you're talking about proceedings with say children aged 10 and 8 um these parents are going to have to work together for the children for the foreseeable future and so one of the considerations the court will have regard to is well what impact 
um, is this order going to have on the parent, the co-parenting relationship? Because yes. uh, we both will have heard judges rightly say that now is the time, parents, you must start work, working together. You must put all this behind you. And uh, certainly to me, it rather flies in the face of that um, to then make a cost order because it's naturally going to embitter one party against the other. Well, what about those cases, so Mark, where um, things have become pretty embittered uh, already? Uh, for instance, if one party uh, raises a host of serious allegations which lead to a fact-finding hearing and then uh, perhaps is found to, to have been lying uh, about all of those allegations. Yeah. What about... Um, Cost orders, that sort of situation. Yeah, I mean, it goes it goes both ways. Um, with fact finding hearings, the the case of Rej that I mentioned is uh, an authority on costs of fact finding hearings, uh, and the basic principle is that, that those hearings are referable to allegations being made. I.e., the only reason why you have this hearing is because someone's made allegations. Um, and it would have been avoided had the allegations not been made. And so you can quite clearly identify the costs that are occasioned by that hearing. So, for example, statements, instructing counsel for yes. the hearings, that kind of thing. So you can put a ring fence around that. And that's actually that is what Rej says. Um, and as I say, it goes both ways. So if you make allegations and you win, you are entitled to pursue your costs I say entitled you there's, there's the argument there to pursue your costs because you can say well look I proved my allegations they should have been accepted um, on the mm -hmm. other hand if someone makes allegations and they're not successful then the person that the accused individual is able to then turn around and say well these allegations are nonsense this whole hearing's been a waste of time it's caused a load of delay um, to progress of contact it's caused a lot of cost um, I want my I want my fees and the the rationale in that case was that essentially the ratio of allegations that are found or not found can be applied to costs so if you prove all your allegations you get all your costs subject to summary assessment or if you get two-thirds of your allegations um, yeah. then etc etc and that 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 logic I think makes sense so yeah those that's the sort of the paradigm situation where costs really follow the event which is not something we really say in children proceedings no and so what happens um in those sorts of situations you've got a fact-finding hearing let's say um you're just for example you're you're the party uh who has um be, been the recipient if you like or the object of all of the allegations um, and the person bringing the allegations is a legally aided litigant and, and that party is unsuccessful. The judge finds that none of those allegations are proved. What happens with costs when you're appearing against someone for all intents and purposes who doesn't have the funding to, to pay a costs order? Yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard because obviously there is this means testing for legal aid. It's really, really, really hard to get these days. And um, the likelihood of getting a cost order, one can try and get a cost order directly against the litigant. Uh, and again, 
you would be applying the rej principles but as you say they're not going to have uh, any money to pay and that the, the common order is is so x is ordered to pay y's costs assessed at um x number of thousand pounds such order not to be enforced without leave of the court but that doesn't actually help you in terms of the money that you've spent um on these proceedings so the other option which seems to be incredibly rarely used is to seek an order that the lord chancellor pays what costs order the um losing party can't pay um, right which is obviously fairly radical and yes. you'd certainly you'd need to be making the application formally you need to be giving the lord chancellor notice um in my experience the two times i've done it they initially write to the court the court will then list a um a hearing that hearing should be on notice to the lord chancellor um and it's about the it's basically then for the lord chancellor to attend and um they will obviously object to having to pay any costs but if they don't turn up to a court hearing to actually fight that fight uh, any court is going to take a fairly dim view of their objection um but their objection is founded on the reading of the various regulations that that underpin this process um that is the sorry i was going to say can you explain a little bit more about that because certainly this is this isn't something that I've come across in my day-to-day -day practice. Um, it, it, it sounds fairly unusual and something I'm sure people, listeners will be eager to find out more about. Well, I hope so, Tara. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the two, the two sets of the, the statute is um, the Civil Legal Aid Brackets Costs Regulations 2013 and then the infamous LASPO from 2012. Yes. Um, so the regulations set out the criteria, um, the important regulations are regulations 10 and 15. Uh, regulation 10 sets out criteria such as um, the proceedings must have been instigated by the legally aided party, the non-legally aided party must be an individual, uh, the court must be satisfied that the non-legally aided party will suffer financial hardship unless the order is made. The court must have regard to the resources of the non-legally aided party and of the party's partner, unless the partner has a contrary interest in the proceedings. It must be just and equitable for an order to be made. So those mm. criteria are sort of, they're easy to get your head around. And yeah. as part of any application, you'd have to have a means assessment um, and what I've has been done previously is basically an asset schedule like you would financial financial remedy case. Yes. In, in assets, income, expenditure, uh, put that forward for both sides, because, of course, it's also about looking at what the legally aided party might be able to contribute to any cost order. Um, but you know, we, we both know the costs of these kind of proceedings and the average person is not likely to be able to just fund that kind of litigation out of their back pocket. No. Generally, they get into fairly enormous amounts of debt, either soft debt or hard commercial debt. So proving financial hardship, I, I would imagine, wouldn't be terribly difficult in a lot of cases. Um, the Then the complicated one is Regulation 15, because it talks about cost protection. Uh, it says, but for cost protection, it would have made a cost order against the legally aided party, i.e. if cost protection wasn't there, 
the order would be against the, the party themselves. So this key question is, does cost protection apply? Because if cost protection doesn't apply, then yeah. the, an order cannot be made against the Lord Chancellor. Um, right. And so this is where it starts to get a bit messy. So regulation... And presumably this is where the party making the application becomes at risk of an adverse cost order against him vis-a-vis -vis the Lord Chancellor. Yeah, I mean, if it, if it gets to the point the Lord Chancellor has to intervene and contest, then of course there is always that risk um, because then they're a third party and it's not children proceedings anymore. Yeah. Um, so the starting point is Regulation 6 um, of the regulations. They say that uh, cost protection doesn't apply to parts of family proceedings for which, uh, for which civil legal services are provided in the form of legal representation, amongst other things. I'm, I'm paraphrasing uh, to take out all the irrelevant guff that are in, is in all these regulations. Yeah. Um, family proceedings themselves are then defined for this purpose in paragraphs 12 and 13 of Schedule 1 to LASPO. And paragraph 13 is relevant in terms of general children at proceedings. So it says, civil legal services provided to an adult in relation to the following orders and procedures where the child who is or would be the subject to the order is at risk of abuse from an individual other than the adult. And then there's a list of following orders and procedures. And one of them is orders mentioned in section 81 of the 1989 Act, brackets, residence, contact and other orders. The 1989 right. Act obviously being the Children Act. And yes. it, the same paragraph 13 goes on to define abuse as meaning physical or mental abuse, including sexual abuse and abuse in the form of violence, neglect, maltreatment and exploitation. Um, so it's this so definition that's really the, the key. Yeah. Um, because effectively, in order for family proceedings to be outside of cost protection, they have to involve a risk of abuse from an individual other than the person bringing the application, i.e. other than the parent. Um, and that, to me, says the intention cannot have been to cover all Section 8 proceedings, because you and I both know that it's entirely possible to have Section 8 proceedings that don't involve a risk of abuse at all. Yes. What if there's a relocation application? I mean, I suppose you could say there's a potential risk of emotional harm, but that's not abuse, and, and the word abuse is explicitly used and defined um you know or a, a specific issue order application to change a surname or something like that i mean we we have there are relatively mundane exercises of parental responsibility which the court has to deal with which don't go anywhere near abuse um so in those sorts of cases far more difficult to obtain an order against the lord chancellor and far greater risk of unfairness um b between the parties in in which sort of cases, sorry? Well, in uh, relocation cases or those where ah, it, no, it doesn't... No. Sorry, that's the... So it's the other way around. Ah, OK. Um, so, so cost protection has to apply. Cost protection has to apply to get that order against the right. Chancellor. I see. And cost protection won't apply if the family proceedings fit into the definition that I mentioned, which includes the risk of abuse. Ah, okay. So um, it's it's a fact-finding hearing, then. Well, for you know, for for, for example, yes, but I, 
again, I mean, I, I would say that a relocation case, there is no, there's no risk of abuse yeah. and therefore cost protection would apply. Therefore, you could get an order if need be. But even with a fact finding hearing, say, OK, lots of allegations have been made, um, which would amount to a risk of abuse. But if those allegations are disproved, then there is no risk of abuse yes. because the court has just found there's no risk of abuse. Exactly. In which case, the proceedings do not fit into the definition in LASPO. Therefore, cost protection must apply. And therefore, the Lord Chancellor would be liable to pay the costs order on behalf of the legally aided party. And in the two cases that you dealt with uh, that um, involved the Lord Chancellor, how readily did you find the court uh, were on those two occasions to construe um, the definition of uh, abuse in a favourable way towards you? Well, I, I, I had this argument relatively recently in, um, in, uh, in a case and the judge was very willing to go along with me because, mm -hmm. as I say, I, I do think, I think the definition is narrow enough to mean that Section 8, it doesn't cover all Section 8 proceedings. And so yeah. we had a letter in that case where the Lord Chancellor said, I'm, we point you to this, this paragraph and this paragraph and cost protection doesn't apply. Um, but as I say, I don't think that's right, actually. And I think, quite frankly, it's only fair that where a legally aided party makes a lot of allegations, brings a case that is then not made out, that they're not able just to litigate with impunity. And OK, maybe they don't get punished, but it's not necessarily fair that the privately paying party has no. to suffer as a result. Because, OK, brilliant, you've got rid of all these allegations. You're going to have contact with your child. Obviously, that is the the ultimate aim but at the same time you're then in a huge amount of debt which which seems to be a, it seems to me to be the wrong working of the system yeah and just two other questions if i may um in the cases that you've dealt with involving the lord chancellor on both of the occasions did did someone turn up was the um, lord chancellor represented or so um the first one we had the order um and i think it was worked out by the solicitors the second one um i understand no um the actual hearing where the costs were ordered the client did himself to save money but we we basically got the decision in principle subject to a means assessment um the lord chancellor had written a letter um and the court had that letter had my submissions made the decision that cost protection applied and so the lord chancellor was liable and then it just fell to a means assessment so as i say my client produced yeah, assets did it on him. Yeah. yeah and um, my second question um was what sorts of timings were you dealing with for these applications to be made and concluded how long does a party have to wait before they get their order against the lord chancellor following a fact-finding hearing, for example. You have you've caught me out, Tara. I'm sure that there is uh, a timescale set out in the regulation. Oh, well, but off the top of my head, I cannot quite remember. Um, I know that in the case most recently, the application was made um, after it was made formally on paper at the conclusion of the 
fact-finding hearing and then was just heard at the next directions hearing but the Lord Chancellor were given notice of the application in advance of the, the next directions hearing um, so off the top of my head that I can't quite remember but I think well, there is these things these things are always in the hands of court listing in any event um, but Mark thank you uh, that's been a really interesting discussion today uh, I, I've certainly learnt a lot and I'm sure our listeners will have um, really enjoyed the helpful uh, tips on such an, such an application. Please do tune in uh, to our next podcast, which will be uh, next week, where I'll be joined by Geoffrey Kelly from Chambers for our nutshell guide to the court's approach to unilateral assets. Uh, as ever, if anyone has any ideas for further topic areas, Mark and I would love to hear from you and you can find our emails on the Pump Court website www.pumpcourtchambers.com and all of our episodes to date are available to download or stream on iTunes, Spotify, Google or the Chambers website. Thank you Mark and thank you everyone. Goodbye. Mm -hmm.